0: Good morning, it is so good to be here. Uh, It's exciting to be here this morning, especially because we are doing something uh, special in this month of February. We call it our February special. And if you don't know what that is, it's okay. It's my first time too. Uh, But our February special is where in the the month of February, uh, Ricky and Jordan and I will all be preaching through one theme, one idea. Uh, And this year we decided to do that preaching through the book of Ephesians. We're calling it Walking Through Ephesians. That's our theme for this month of February. And so we'll we'll be preaching through the book. We'll get through all six chapters one way or another. Uh, And what that means is that we're going to be looking at chapter one this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter one. And what we're going to try to be focusing on this morning as we look in Ephesians 1, what Paul has written for us there, is how we need to be walking with open eyes. When we go through chapter 1, in order to walk how God wants us to walk, I think Paul is trying to show us that we need to walk with open eyes. Before we dive into chapter 1, I want to kind of quickly get an overview to just introduce us to the letter of Ephesians. Some have said that Ephesians is Paul's greatest letter that it's the most magnificent, that it's the most, it's the farthest reaching. Uh, There's some reasons for that. You don't really see any specific rebukes against any particular church in this letter. Uh, There's no long greetings at the beginning and the end with a long list of names. It's really just Paul going on these long sentences, these long uh, words about praise and about prayer and about practical living. And it's just, it's a beautiful letter. Maybe the most beautiful letter that Paul ever wrote. But when you look at the structure, even though Ephesians is so elegant, it's actually maybe one of the most simple, uh, because there's a very clean division right in the middle. The the first three chapters tell us about what we have in Christ, our wealth in Christ, and the last three chapters tell us about our walk. The first part, what God has done for us, and the second part, how we should respond to that. So the structure is really easy to get, and Paul uses some repeated words that I think kind of helps us clue into what he's getting at. Uh, He uses this phrase, in Christ, throughout the book, or in him. And so he repeatedly is reminding us that everything we have in God comes through Christ. He also uses superlatives again and again, this all and this every and this everything. Uh, And he's wanting us to get, get the scope, the magnitude of what he's talking about, the scope of the grace God has shown us, the scope of how bad off we were before we were in Christ. Uh, He he uses also this this phrase that's unique to Ephesians, uh, heavenly places. He continually talks about the heavenly places, not just things on earth, but Paul's trying to tell us about things in heaven. And he also uses this phrase three times in chapter 1, to the praise of his glory. The reason God is doing this, the reason for this gospel that Paul is preaching, these words, it's really not about us. It's to the praise of God's glory. And he has two significant prayers that are in this letter to the Ephesians. One comes in chapter one, one in chapter three. The focus of our lesson this morning is actually gonna be that first prayer in chapter one. Uh, and j- just a fun fact about Ephesians, uh, two of the longest sentences in all the New Testament uh, come in the letter of the Ephesians. Uh, Luke's genealogy takes the cake for the longest sentence. But outside of genealogies, the longest two sentences after that make up chapter 1. Chapter 1 is just two sentences in Greek. We, we kind of get some punctuation in English to help us. But but it's like Paul just, just can't contain himself. He just keeps on going and going and going. And then finally you get to, to verse 15, and it's like he can't just take it anymore. And he just has to break out in this prayer. And so we're going to look at that later on this morning. But one other thing I want to bring your attention to, while this letter has been called Paul's greatest letter, some have also called this Paul's revelation. There's some reasons for that. He uses that word a few times in the letter. Look at chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Paul points back to everything he's written to this point, and he says this is essentially... A revelation. This is my revelation. The idea of that word is to uncover something, to pull back the curtain so you can see things that weren't previously seen. And that's what Paul is doing throughout this letter, talking about things that are in Christ and the heavenly places. He's trying to pull back the curtain and let us see these things. That's that's the 3,000 foot view of Ephesians. But let's let's focus on chapter one. Before we get to our prayer in verse 15, I want to walk you through a few things that comes before that. Notice verse three. It blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice Paul begins this letter first by blessing God. And not by talking about how we're blessed. The very first thing that comes out of his mouth is blessing God. The idea of blessing is to speak well of, or to praise. And Paul just starts right out the gate by blessing God. And then he tells us about where we find our blessings in Christ. Paul says that the blessings that we have from God come nowhere else. If you are outside of Christ, you are not blessed. But if you are in Christ, you are blessed. And notice how many blessings we have. He says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul is saying you have the best blessings. You have blessings in the heavenlies, and you have all of them. I mean, what a way to open a letter. (laughs) Uh, Hi, Ephesians, go check your spiritual bank account. It's overflowing. You have the best, and you have all of the best. And then notice verse 10. Talking about this plan through Christ that Paul's been developing in chapter 1, he says, As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This plan is what everything was looking forward to, to unite all things in heaven and earth. It reminds us of the model prayer that Jesus gave. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will should be on earth as it is his will in heaven. Things work according to God's will in heaven, and that's supposed to be the same way on earth, but it's not always that way. Because there's sin, and there's evil, and there's defeat on earth. But what's the solution to that? It's this plan through Christ. It's in him that these things are going to be united. That's what Paul is trying to reveal to us. And so he, he finished this amazing section in 3 through 14 about how we're blessed, and then he breaks into this prayer for the rest of chapter 1. Uh, and I think this is a great place for us to start in the month of February, looking how Paul is trying to get us to walk with open eyes. Let's go ahead and read the prayer beginning in verse 15. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith and the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. An amazing prayer. He begins in verse 15 by saying, For this reason... He he points us back to everything he's already written about in chapter one, all these blessings that we have in Christ. And then Paul acknowledges who he's writing to. He, he says, I know what you're doing, Ephesians, and the other Christians that this letter was going to. I, I know what you're doing. You have faith in the Lord and you love the brethren. He he knows what they've been up to, but he wants more for them. He wants them to know some things about God. And so he he prays, for this knowing and in this prayer paul's going to point out three different things that he wants us to know he wanted them to know he wants us to know but but notice how he wants us to do that how it's going to come about in verse 18 having the eyes of your hearts enlightened it's a, it's a beautiful imagery that paul paints for us here well when he says the heart your heart that's the idea of who you are that's the essence of you. That, that's your mind, and that's your emotions. That's your will. Your heart is you. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we read, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God didn't want a king that just looked good. He wanted a king that was good. Your heart it's who you are. And so he, he talks about the heart, but then he says it's the eyes of our heart that need to be enlightened. You, your eyes work by taking in light. That, that's, they, they process by taking in light. That, that's how you discern things and understand things and perceive things. Um, you know, if you go down into a deep cave uh, where there's completely no light, you turn all the lights off and you put your hand right in front of your face, you can't see it. Why? Because there's no light. Your eyes don't work unless there's light. Even when something is right in front of your face. I think that's what Paul's getting at. He's trying to tell the Ephesians, there are all these things that are right in front of you. If you just open your eyes, if you let this light come into your eyes. And so he wants the eyes of their hearts enlightened to see these invisible things. But there's, there's a problem with this. Because Paul wants them to know God. He wants them to see God. He, he wants them to know you can know of someone and not really know them uh I I know of Dak Prescott uh if you don't know who that is you're probably better off it's okay um but 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 I know of Dak I mean I know know a lot of things about him I know where he went to college I know what NFL team he plays for and I can look up his stats and I can look up how much money he makes I can know all kinds of stuff about Dak Prescott but but I don't really know him I mean I've never talked to him I don't really know what drives him I don't know what his his ambitions are, what, what makes him tick. Uh, on the other hand, I I know my wife. I know her. I know what drives her. I know what scares her. I know what she desires. I, I know my wife. But, but even then, there, there's probably some of you that are thinking, you know, you think you know your wife? You know, I've been married. I've been married longer than you've been alive, Jansen. Uh, just wait till that baby turns into a teenager. <laughs> then you'll know your wife. Uh, so, so the idea is that even, even the person I know best on this earth, better than anyone here in this room, there's still more to know. There's more to know. That's what Paul wants these Ephesians to do, to know God. But the thing is, is he wants him, them to know God and to see God, but you can't see God. They can't see God with their physical eyes. Paul wants them to see something that's invisible. We, we call that faith. Paul is asking them to have faith, to see things that you can't see. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, it says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. For the things that are unseen are eternal. How do you see unseen things? Through faith. Paul will say again in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul's not wanting them to look with their physical eyes. He wants them to look with faith. Also in Hebrews 11 verse 27, speaking of Moses, it says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw him, God, who is invisible. How? The eyes of his heart was enlightened. He was walking by faith. So Paul wants us to know and to see God, to know what he's done in Christ. And he wants us to know Three things but before we get there you know just thinking about this idea of knowing and seeing God Paul Paul has told us that we need to see things in Christ not only do we need to see God we need to see Jesus do you remember what Thomas wanted to do when he wanted to see Jesus he wanted to touch the wounds in his side and after he does in 29 Jesus said to him have you believed because you have seen me Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus wants us to see him without seeing him. Also in 1 Peter one eight: Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Even though we don't see Jesus, we can see Jesus. How do we do that? Galatians 3.1 Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. How, how did the Galatians see Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified? Uh, Paul didn't bring a video with him. He, he didn't draw some picture like of Jesus on the cross. No, it was through his preaching. It, it's through the word. It's through this word that Paul is giving us that we can see Jesus without actually seeing Jesus. It's through the word. What we read in Psalm uh, or First, Second Corinthians four verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul essentially is preaching what he was praying in Ephesians. Through his preaching, through his words, light was shining into darkness, where into their hearts. To do what? To give them knowledge. How do we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened? It's through the Word. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Through God's Word. Just one more in Luke 24. Even after Jesus was resurrected, how did he enlighten his disciples? Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus taught his disciples through the Scriptures. I wanted to go through that to show us that we can see Jesus, and hopefully that helps you appreciate your Bible study. Hopefully that helps you appreciate this word that we read. It's through this word that our eyes are enlightened. It's through this letter that Paul wants our eyes enlightened, and I hope we do that this month of February. But let, let's, let's get now to the three things that Paul wanted these Ephesians to know. In verse 18, the first thing he says is that he wants them to know the hope of his calling. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is not a hope like the world. Um, there's a slogan, there's a phrase that's used in medical circles, especially like surgeons uh, that deal with risky, uh, kind of high, uh, high risk patients. Uh, they'll say, "Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst." Uh, that's not our hope. That's not biblical hope. We're not like a surgeon walking into an operating room, hoping that all is going to go well. No, our hope is a real confidence. Paul wants us to open our eyes to the hope that we have. Notice, notice the way he says it. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I think there are two ways we can take this. First is thinking about the hope that we personally have. Paul has written about this in the whole beginning section of chapter 1. All these things that we have in Christ, he says to us that we've been redeemed. You were lost and you were separated from Christ and you couldn't do anything on your own. But Christ has freed you. You've been redeemed. He'll talk about how also we were chosen. We're chosen in Christ. I don't know if you were ever on the playground as a kid and you know, kind of waiting in the lineup and, and hoping that one of the two captains would eventually choose you. you. know Maybe they did at the very end just because they had to. Uh, but that's not how we were chosen in Christ. God chose us. He chose us in Christ. He also says that we're adopted. That we're adopted as sons. If you've ever felt like you don't fit in somewhere, that you don't have a real family, Paul says in Christ, in Christ the hope you have is being adopted. But it's not only adoption. He also says that we were made heirs. It's not like when we came to Christ, we just kind of just barely got in through the door, snuck out of the rain and get to hide in the dark corner in God's house. No, we're fellow heirs. Heirs we're sons with God, and then Paul finally says, towards the end of this first section, of chapter one, about how, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we were sealed, and how we have a guarantee of the inheritance. This hope is a real hope. If we pulled back the curtain and we saw what Paul could see, we would see a status that's in Christ when we're with him. But, but there's a second way that I think Paul might be using this phrase. When he says, what is the hope to which he has called you? Think about it this way. If, if, you, if there was a nonprofit organization that was doing some charitable work, uh, and they needed funds to, in order to do this work, and someone gave them a large amount of money in order to, to fund this thing, uh, there's kind of two sides of the hope. There's the hope that's uh, you know, received by the person that gets the money, but there's also a hope for the person that's giving the money. They're hoping that th- these funds are going to fund something great, that this organization is going to help families or, or build this project that's going to help the community. There's a hope for the one that's, that's giving the gift. And I think maybe that's also what Paul is getting at, that God had a hope for us when he called us. Now, notice verse 4 chapter 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God called us for a reason. That we would be holy, that we would be blameless. He, he also says, you know, he uses this, for faith, this, this phrase over and over again to the praise of his glory. Notice in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There's a reason that we were called. It's not just about us being forgiven. It's about praising our God. That's God's hope for us when he called us. So Paul says, I want you to know the hope of his calling. Ephesians says, "I want you to know the riches of his inheritance." He he continues in verse eighteen, "What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints?" You understand what we just read. Whose inheritance is it? Let's read it again. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It's God's inheritance. What is the inheritance? What does God get out of doing all of these things that Paul is writing about in Ephesians? What does God get for blessing us in Christ? What does God get for giving us every spiritual blessings in the heavenly place, for adopting us and making us sons? What does God get out of all of this for giving up his only beloved son? Us. He gets us. We are God's inheritance. You know, if you had a family member, a long-lost family member that was very wealthy and they died, and you find out you, you know, you're know, you going to get some inheritance from them, you'd probably be wondering, what am I going to get out of it? Well, what, what do I get to fill my house with now out of this inheritance? God gets to fill his house with his people. Israel was called God's inheritance. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 20, it says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are This day, Israel was supposed to be God's inheritance. Again, in Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 8, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. God was saving Israel so he could have Israel. And God is saving us so he can have us. We are God's inheritance. Why God gave his son was so he could have us. There are two great truths in scripture about our relationship with God. And I think Paul does a masterful job of pointing to both of these. He pointed first to the first truth in the first part of chapter one, this idea to the praise of his glory. The idea that the only thing that's worthy of praise, the only thing that's worthy of being glorified is God. God didn't do all this because we were so great. God didn't do all this because he needed to do something for us. It's because he is the one that needs to be glorified. When God asks us to worship him, when God asks us to glorify him, it's the only logical thing to ask because he's the only thing worthy of that. And so it's not because of us God didn't need us. But then there's the second truth that Paul hits on in this prayer. That even though we're not worthy, even though we're not deserving, even though God doesn't need us, God wants us. He wants us. Paul tells me to understand that, to comprehend that. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I'll really ever understand that. God wants you And he wants me. We are the riches of his inheritance. And Paul wants our eyes to be open to that. I don't know where your scale of self-worth is this morning. I don't know if in the Greek there was the emoji for like the head exploding, but I think that's what Paul is trying to get across here. Uh, He wants to blow your mind with how much God wants you, with how much God loves you. When you peel back the curtain, it's not the cosmic cop that's trying to take you out at every turn. It's a God that did all this, because you're in his inheritance. God wants us. The third thing that Paul wants us to notice, to know, is the greatness of his power. Notice in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Paul is going to heap up these phrases about God's power throughout the rest of chapter 1, about about how Jesus is over all of these things, and he just kind of keeps pouring it on. But, but notice what Paul wants them to know about his power. It's power towards us. It's the same power that God showed towards Jesus. What kind of power? Well, he says it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is resurrection power. Paul wants us to know that this power is the power that God is currently working in us. We, we have this calling that Paul is telling us about. And we need God's power to carry out that calling. We can't make ourselves heirs. We can't adopt ourselves. We can't resurrect ourselves and be with God in the final day. We need this resurrection power that we find God working in us, that he also worked in Jesus. But but it's not just a bodily resurrection. There's this power that also conquered spiritual death. This is the same power that Jesus defeated Satan with on the cross. See, so there's, this, there's this reality that, that we have an enemy. It's possible that Paul was speaking to these Ephesians and other churches, uh, maybe about some mysticism that they had learned, picked up as Gentiles before they came to Christ. And, and all, the, all these Greek gods and idols and all these mystic powers that were possibly over them. And what Paul is trying to do is show them that Jesus is above all things, that he's above all these enemies. And even though maybe they were confused, we do in fact have an enemy. That's why Paul, at the end of this letter, is going to talk about this armor that we put on to fight against Satan. You see, the the Ephesians had it partly right, because they weren't just battling against flesh and blood. They were battling against spiritual forces in the heavenly places, as Paul would say. But Paul's point is that even though that can be scary, we have way more power than we even need to fight our enemy. Immeasurable, great power. It's power that worked in us when we came to Christ. Paul will say that you were dead in your trespasses and you needed a resurrection. And that's the power that was realized in Christ. He wants us to see that, to see what God has already done with you, to see the power of that, the power that God is working in you. Paul's trying to pull back this curtain, trying to pull back the curtain and let us see these things that are going on in the heavenly places. Do you notice what Paul didn't pray for in these three things? He didn't pray that we would have more hope. He he didn't pray that we would have more things to hope for. He didn't pray that we would have something that would make us more valuable. He didn't pray that we would have more power. Paul just prayed that we would see it. He just wants us to open our eyes to what we already have realized in Christ. You do have a hope. You are the riches of his inheritance. You do have this power working in you. Paul's just trying to pull back the curtain... So we can see these things. But I want you to notice where he ends his prayer. In talking about the power we have through Christ, we noted before that this is kind of one long sentence. Like this just continues this thought that Paul is talking about. And it ends by talking about the church. Paul begins kind of after verse 19 talking about how all things were put under Jesus' feet. He's above all things. And then he says in verse 22, And he put all things under his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all and all. Christ is the head of the church. Paul would just say this explicitly in Colossians, like Christ is the head of the church. Notice how he does it here, though. He first says that the Christ is head of everything. Everything has been put under Christ's feet. He is head over all, and then he was also given to the church. Now, being head over all means he's also head over the church. But how Paul is putting it is he's over all things, and he's also over the church. The idea is that he's over the universe, he's head of the universe, and he's also head of the church. The same head over all things is the head over Christ's church. And, and he ends by talking about how Christ is filling his church. Christ is enabling his church. The, the, the filling verbiage should kind of bring back to our minds the, the temple imagery. How God's presence would fill the temple In God's church, his people is where his presence is supposed to be. God's church is how Christ is showing himself to the world. Do we see what Paul has done in this prayer? He begins by starting with praising the Ephesians, but he doesn't stop there. Why does he want the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened? Why does Paul, does Paul want us, rather, to open our eyes? Because when we open our eyes, we open the world's eyes. Now that's where this plan pointed to you all along. The Christ church. But there's something that stands in the way of this. There's something that stands in the way of us opening our eyes and opening the world's eyes to the church. I think it's our vision. I think it's what we can see. So I want to close with this thought. What is my view of the church? Do we see the church like Paul did? Could we pray the same prayer that Paul prayed? About God's church, can we say with confidence that our little corner of the kingdom, this little local church, this local congregation, is what Paul prayed about being the fullness of Christ? I think sometimes we can't. I think sometimes we feel like what's going on here maybe doesn't have the grand implications that Paul is showing us in Ephesians one. Why is that? I think it's because our eyes, our hearts, haven't been enlightened. We get caught looking with our physical eyes um we we get caught looking with the things right in front of us we get caught thinking that that just pulpits and classrooms or just maybe lecture halls that that just it's a transfer of information um that 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 prayer lists are just kind of well wishes that 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 duty rosters that that participating in worship maybe is just just a a performance or maybe even an obligation we don't see the church how paul sees it we see it as a place to go rather than who we are. Paul wants us to understand what God's church was supposed to be. How do we help our perception? How do we fix this? How can we know that this body is the fullness of Christ? I think there's many ways, but for Paul in Ephesians 1, it's through prayer. It's through praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. It's through prayer that we would know these things that he wants us to know, that we would know our hope, that we would know the riches, the value that we have to God, that we would know the power that he's working in us. This this prayer is really pretty humbling because sometimes we realize just how dim our eyes can be, how we're just walking around in this world kind of pinching pennies together when up in heaven there's kind of blank checks waiting for us that we don't see this grand scale that paul's trying to get us to see but i want to encourage us I want to encourage us especially this month as we study through this letter to the ephesians to pray this prayer that paul prayed that we would see these things that we would see what paul wanted us to see in ourselves and in this church in this group here we, we are trying to do here what paul wrote for us we're trying to be the fullness of christ we're trying to open the world's eyes. That's our goal. So pray that this month. Why don't we end with, with just that prayer? You pray with me. Father, you are so good. You have loved us in amazing ways. Father, you have given us so much. You you have given us, Father, more than we know. You've given us more than we can see. You've given us every spiritual blessing. your son father thank you father you've given us a calling and you've given us a purpose and we we see that purpose we see it in your church it's realized through your church it's realized when when we as your body do your work in your name father we we don't always get it right sometimes we don't get along as we should Father, sometimes we we don't see the things that we should. Sometimes we don't practice all the things that we should. But Father, help us to see what you want for us in your church. Father, help us to have eyes that are enlightened. Help us to see the hope of your calling for us. Help us to see the riches of your inheritance in us. Help us to see the power that you're working through us, Father. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and for us being in him. pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.